0: Welcome to Offshoot, the Fident Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple, supporting entrepreneurs fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me on Episode 7 of Offshoot. Today's conversation is with Peter Kleinberg, a vice president of ESI Ventures. ESI plays in the space of co-GP investment, as well as providing credit enhancement for their operating partners who may lack net worth and liquidity to secure debt. The space of credit enhancement is loaded with nuance and complexity as significant downside risks exist. Peter goes deep with me on all the deal attributes and structures which allow ESI to mitigate some of these risks. I hope you can appreciate the prying i do here as a way to illuminate how well they see the risks and how they're protecting themselves uh, throughout the exchange peter comes through as a thoughtful uh, guy who's deeply aware of the fact patterns associated with not only his investments but the industry as a whole peter's one of the younger guests i've had on the show and i think you'll see why he has fully got the plot and i hope you enjoy the exchange Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Peter Kleinberg, who's the vice president of ESI Ventures, a diversified and opportunistic commercial real estate investment firm that focuses on the acquisition, development, and reposition of value-add and adaptive reuse projects through a variety of positions in the capital stack. Since inception, ESI Ventures, which is really an extension of a family office, has transacted on over $1 billion of deals across multiple property types, and geographies, approximately $500 of which has come in the past five years. Importantly, ESI plays in the space of co-GP investing, placing money alongside project sponsors as they concurrently raise more commodity LP equity investment. ESI also provides credit enhancement for their operating partners who may not have sufficient net worth and liquidity to secure bridge or construction debt on their own. That whole Enterprise reminds me of Edie Brickell lyrics about a walk on the slippery rocks. Credit enhancement is, for many industry players, a space they simply will not enter, seeing way more downside, satisfying a loan guarantee than the offsetting upside. We will, of course, get into all of this. Peter's a longtime acquaintance and friend who I met many years ago as he departed Vanderbilt's graduate business program to enter the commercial real estate space as an analyst for one of our capital providers. Since, we've both gotten a good bit older and maybe wiser. And Peter's had a great career moving from the buy-side analyst role to a note sales group at SunTrust Bank as part of the Great Recession to assisting in the formation of a high-performance sell-side team at George Smith Partners in 2012. From there, he went on to lead the successful IPO of Landmark Infrastructure Partners on the NASDAQ in 2014. And following that, he launched a commercial real estate operating company and fund. Peter received an MBA from Vanderbilt University and a BA from the University of Colorado and like more than a handful of this show's early guests also loves to chase powder often spending months at a time in Jackson Hole. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
0: I appreciate being on. Thanks for the nice intro.
1: Yeah, of course. To start, could you just tell me a bit about yourself and ESI Ventures?
0: Sure. Well, um, as for me, I went to Colorado for undergrad, as you mentioned, I'm actually born and raised in Boulder, so didn't go far from home. Um, Lived in Southern California for a a number of years, which, as you mentioned, but I think you had the dates a bit mixed. I actually met you after I finished uh, at Boulder. And before I went to Vanderbilt,
1: I was worried that I might have had that
0: wrong. When when I was with MKA Capital Group, and and again, as you mentioned, went back for my MBA during the Great Recession at Vanderbilt University, and um, got hired subsequent to that at SunTrust Bank, and helped co-launch the Note Sales Group in 2010, housed underneath their commercial real estate and credit risk management groups in uh, a group that's often referred to as special situations but in this case it was the special assets division um you know we worked down through a a triage of workout strategies which are generally defined as you know foreclosure loan modification and uh where i worked in note sales uh we worked down about a three billion dollar balance sheet the uh catch 22 of being in a role like that is that, you know, you work yourself out of a job. Um, So took the opportunity to move back to the West coast. um, And again, helped um, found uh, a team at George Smith Partners, Um, was there for a number of years and moved on to uh, more of a private capital role. And so uh, now at ESI Ventures, uh, enjoying things. And as you said, you know, like to get out, ski, be outdoors, um, live on the beach in LA, and uh, you know it's a lovely day in the neighborhood. So,
1: it's yeah, great. So, what what can you tell me about ESI and, and your role with with that enterprise?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we're a pretty lean team. Um, so, my role is, you know, if the printer's out of ink, I uh, I go put it back in, and uh, if the deal needs underwriting, I underwrite it um all the way through to the cr- closing process so think cradle to grave whatever is necessary relative to to closing a JV equity transaction um, again we focus in the co-GP space uh, it fits our DNA pretty well you know ESI is structured as a family office um, and that family office is comprised of three principles um, those three principles are also, principles of a much larger firm, which is ESI Enterprises International or International Enterprises, excuse me. Uh, and so they, you know, over the past 30 to 50 years, have done about a billion to you know a billion dollars of top line revenue, uh, which sort of creates this evergreen wealth source for us and for our investing strategy. Um, they are the largest privately held consumer electronics manufacturing and distribution company uh, in the United States, or one of the largest at this point.
1: Very good. And look, I certainly understand the CoGP space. It It is a bit esoteric, though, um, in particular. Uh, well, let's just say this, I suspect certain of our les- listeners won't understand w- what you mean by CoGP. So in, in your words, how do you how do you define a CoGP investment?
0: Sure. So I think the easiest way to think about it is, you know, take a step back in a 30,000 foot view of the capital stack and it basically bifurcates, right? You've got debt and you've got everything that's not debt. Um, Everything that's not debt can be made up of a whole bunch of exotic things, but let's just call it equity for conversation's sake. Um, the equity is usually, it starts out as a GP, as the general partner, right? Who's the sponsor of the project. They oftentimes, especially as you get into high dollar projects, uh, don't have enough liquidity or don't want to invest their liquidity in the entirety of the equity stack. So they go out to more institutional groups and traditionally called LPs, and that's short for limited partner. And those limited partners will in a circumstance they like the transaction invest 80 to well let's just say 80 plus percent of the equity requirement so now you've got a split of the equity stack into lp and gp the lp whatever they may fund leaves a remainder and that's the gp equity requirement oftentimes for emerging sponsorship groups they don't have the liquidity or don't want to spend the liquidity on investing in just a single project. We'll come in and fill that gap. So usually that looks like 50 to 80% of the co-GP requirement. We like them to continue to have skin in the game. So they'll need to invest at least 20% of what that requirement is. And we become a, a co gt or, or a co-sponsor. Um, you know, it is and, and will remain uh, in the hands of the lead sponsor, who's the group that brought it to us. Um, and that's, sort of generally how it works and um, you know for that investment um, we participate in the economics relative to the GP whether it be fees or promotes.
1: Yep perfect and I think we'll we'll get into all of that but what key events I mean you've had a very interesting career and and have seen a lot of different aspects of the industry and I I know you've been involved with some pretty esoteric product types um, you know the cell phone towers and some of the energy projects and and kind of stripping out revenue streams and finding ways to monetize them uh and also you know, you've been on the sell side doing what i do you've been on the anal- analytical side and the buy side uh obviously did all the workout stuff what what is it that led you to join uh esi because i would say this is a very interesting and and narrow niche there are not a lot of players in this space
0: yeah, so I mean, look, like anything else, your the, the the options you have are you know relative to the options available. <clears throat> um, when I was looking to you know start on at a new firm, <clears throat> ESI, is a couple of things, right? Number one, it's highly entrepreneurial. Um, number two, it's a, a pretty flat organization, so you've got a lot of nimble decision making which is going on. Number three. You get to work with a wide variety of sponsors including those individuals and this is how it frequently occurs that we get emerging sponsorship groups that are ex-senior management at one of the large institutional lps that i mentioned before and those individuals have done a lot of deals they're really smart they're you know emerging sponsors and they're probably going to make a big impact and you get to be on the front end of what that journey is for them so all of those items made it a compelling opportunity plus it's entrepreneurial in its own right so it's existed for a number of years right as a real estate investment vehicle for the family who principles it but in its current iteration it's you know only about five years old so when I joined it was you know year three and it seemed like a great opportunity to get in on the ground floor of something, which again, is a bit esoteric. It's unique within the community and um, yeah, seemed like a lot of fun. That's
1: great. Um, what's happening in the business now? What are, what are you guys seeing? What challenges are you facing?
0: So interestingly enough, we made a number of acquisitions over the past 12 to 18 months. Um, those acquisitions were, um, anywhere from existing buildings with uh, you know adaptive reuse plans to uh, ground up development in you know markets we saw were attractive. Uh, we've since spent time checking all the necessary boxes and we are in the capital markets in a very real way with regard to a number of different property types. So the exposure that we have to you know what the debt markets look like, what LP appetite is relative to ground up versus uh, adaptive reuse and things like that. it's It's been pretty interesting. I will say that the most recent asset we were taking a look at was in the Pacific Northwest of a hospitality nature. and it's been difficult to generate the or maybe I should say it's been challenging to generate the interest that you would ordinarily see in a frothy market. So, I think people are starting to come around, but I don't think we're there yet. And on the, the, the projects with a construction element, we're seeing a lot of raw materials pricing impact our ability to push the yields that we had anticipated prior, previous. So, you know, there are a lot of timing um, considerations and, and other items, not atypical of, of, of a project's life cycle.
1: Construction materials I mean I think lumber had just spiked some sometime in this kind of February March 2021 time frame. Uh, what other what other elements, if any are driving you guys concerns on construction costs?:
0: Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that we're building is type 3 modified type 3. So lumber as a raw material is very impactful for what we're analyzing outside of that I've seen you know a number of ancillary materials um, I think there was something in The Wall Street Journal this morning even on copper and some other um, items which is uh, significantly impacting the the pace at which homes are able to be built
1: interesting um, so look you mentioned the hospitality project and I know you've uh, also looked recently at some multifamily assets w- where is the general? um investment mandate or where where is your interest in terms of you know the markets the assets uh you've already covered kind of types of financing being that that uh you know co-gp slice in you know, your minimum maximum investment uh geography you know what what's kind of to the extent there is a target as opposed to just a broad mandate to be opportunistic what are you guys looking for
0: Um, So uh, historically, we've focused on three asset types, uh, multifamily, hospitality, and office. Um, Those are targets, and it's not gospel, it's just guidance. I mean, we're fairly opportunistic in nature, so we'll really kick the tires on anything that's got a good story. Obviously, office has lost its uh, momentum. I don't know if it's lost its full appeal, but it's lost its momentum. It's Difficult to define uh what that looks like going forward, so we've focused our attention on multifamily and and actually really on hospitality during this downturn because we're um, b- believers in it from not only experience but um also because of what we see in the market uh, Geographies are Texas and west um, you know that's generally driven by the fact that. You know getting on a, a plane flight that's over an hour is uh, it can become a fairly arduous exercise that's not to say that we we wouldn't take a look at um at something again that was opportunistic and was lo- located on the east coast um but texas and west is is where we focus our time um we don't love getting into competitive bidding situations uh but you know it's it's unavoidable at, at, at some point um but you know, a good example of a transaction that we closed on <clears throat> is the, the Georgian hotel in Santa Monica, right on ocean Avenue, which we were able to get as an off market transaction. And that to us is, is ideal.
1: And what about investment minimum and maximum for, for you guys?
0: Yeah. So we generally like to invest about one to 4 million, um, within the co GP. So that sizes to anywhere from, <clears throat> 50 million up to 150 million. Uh, I think the at, lowest. At the asset level, right? At the asset level. That, that would be total capitalized project costs. So um, the minimum that we would do is 40 million. And I, I think that would have to be driven by, you know, it sounds cliche, but a, a programmatic relationship uh, and a pipeline behind it.
1: Yep. And then as far as primary, secondary, tertiary markets, where are you guys playing in that regard? I know you you're doing secondary markets. Would you consider uh, a Boise, a, a Bozeman, uh Spokane, you know, name Ogden, name it. Any of those would would you guys ever go out that way or are you much more focused on the kind of
0: you know, yeah. major
1: league baseball teams and the like?
0: It, yeah, I think more the latter. Um I think the the opportunities within primary markets, specifically within our home uh, geography of Los Angeles, uh, continue to be compelling. So until there's a real reason to, you know, go outside of it, um, you know, we prefer to to, to stay where, where we know the most and where we think there's, you know, growth trajectory. Um, not to say that, you know, those markets listed don't have a growth trajectory, but it would require, I think, a lot more research on our end to get comfortable. And, you know, Subsequent to that, get our investment committee comfortable with making an investment there.
1: Right. And then you've already mentioned you're doing some development projects um, which have their own r- risk sort of issues, which you, some of which you just detailed in terms of construction materials. What about entitlement? Would you guys get into uh, projects that require some kind of entitlement?
0: Uh, not ideally. Um, entitlement risk is not something that we generally um, would pursue. I think that there's enough within the sort of construction and permitting area that um, you know our risk starts to get out of balance when entitlement comes into play.
1: Okay. Well, look. Um, let's just zoom out a little bit. I mean, now let's kind of bring it to earth. So, one to $4 million, fifty to one hundred fifty million dollar projects. You're you're willing to do development deals. You're putting in a fraction of 50 to 150 million dollar project capitalization running as a co sponsor. Um, again, this is like there's not a lot of people who do this, and we haven't gotten into the whole maybe, maybe we should go there and then let's talk about how you guys wrap this investment in terms of mitigating risk and price. But before we go there, uh, you also on occasion, along with making your co GP investment, will provide some credit enhancement so can you talk to that for just a little bit
0: sure so you know as i alluded to before a number of the sponsorship groups who we work with would be you know sort of colloquially classified as emerging sponsors right which i mean i i think means not that they don't have a ton of experience but that they're just starting to get into much larger transactions uh which require a, a significant net worth and sufficient liquidity so they can get the most competitive financing terms uh, if we you know our our preference is to make a coGP investment and include that credit enhancement feature as a uh, a benefit to uh, to you know partnering with us um, but on occasion we will consider a standalone credit enhancement um, in a deal that we that we don't directly invest in
1: and what's that look like for you guys? I mean, look, uh, credit can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, right? Obviously, the the most uh, uh, I'll offensive, uh, most egregious, the most challenging, yeah. <laughs> uh, the most downside is a full personal repayment guarantee, right? Back off yeah. of that, we've got uh, completion guarantees and maybe an interest carry guarantee. Um, back off that, you've got your bad boy, uh, you know, negligence, fraud, bad acts, et cetera, and your sure. environmental guarantees. So at what elevation are you guys flying when you say, you know, we'll we'll go ahead and provide some credit enhancement?
0: Yeah, great question. Uh, we won't take any recourse risk. Um, we will limit it to usually completion guarantees and your standard bad boy carve outs. Um, and that seems to be uh, a pretty competitive offering when it comes to development financing.
1: Okay, perfect. So now let's back it out. You know, 150 million dollar total cap. You guys are doing one to four million. Uh, you're providing co GP investment. You're becoming a co sponsor effectively. You're providing credit enhancement. You know, there's a there's a more than a small uh, segment of the industry your investment peers, especially as you cross the line into credit enhancement. That that would you know just sort of being candid about it was, what, are you crazy? Like I, I would never take a credit risk on a sponsor. Like there's so much risk. What happens if he falls on his face? The downside relative to your one or $4 million equity investment could be substantial. I'm not sure you can get properly compensated for coming into that position. And generally, as you know, from your days on the, the brokerage side of the, the industry, The answer is a flat out no. You go ask an LP or anybody on that side to provide credit support. I mean, there are some exceptions, but more than 90, 95% of the time, if you're talking to institutional capital, no. Let let me repeat myself. No. Uh, They're just not going to do it. So how are you guys approaching that space and gaining comfort with the risks associated with the position or perhaps more appropriately, how are you mitigating the risks associated with getting into that space?
0: Yeah, so good question. Um, I think that the, you know, the 30,000 foot answer is that institutional capital doesn't do it because institutional capital isn't truly discretionary. Um, We are, right? And so uh, the, or we are not institutional. Um, We invest in institutional deals, but we don't have sort of red tape bureaucracy that prevents us from you know, throwing our weight behind a deal, which we think can uh, be completed. Now, in a circumstance where we were purely credit enhancement, there would have to be significant coverage relative to the equity and debt capitalization. Um, for an example, the last deal that we took a look at um, had exposure at about 50% of historical market um, transactions, which is to say, um, a market where multifamily deals traded at about 600k per door, the debt exposure was at 300k a door. So, in a burn down scenario where the sponsor falls on his face, or doesn't, um, you know, achieve what he set out to, or just flat out isn't capable, and it was a miss the liquidation value of the project, especially after equity is fully funded, uh, was acceptable to us. We didn't see a lot of <clears throat> loss possibility because of the work that would get done with the equity that was coming in prior to the debt funding.
1: Right. And look, I'm talking to developers and, and you know the entrepreneurial value-add opportunistic sponsors all the time so we should beat on this for a bit because otherwise sure. you're you're gonna get blown up with guys who are like okay i got 85 <laughs> leverage right. i just need you guys to provide a personal repayment guarantee and you know it like th- th- this is really important like th- there you are you've already mentioned it right this emerging manager space there's a focus on net worth and liquidity that keeps a bunch of guys from getting up more quickly to the next level and so the product is clearly in high demand but there's some really important caveats that you're articulating in just that one example so one 50 percent lgv right it, it, there's a three hundred thousand dollar loan basis market is 600 grand worst case scenario it's probably going to be the case that the lender finds all the remedy they need from just a simple foreclosure but second you were saying once equity is fully funded so what's that Aspect of the deal look like as I presume that was a value add deal?
0: This is actually ground up construction.
1: Ground up even better. Okay. So walk me through
0: that. Yeah. So we, we basically break it in half, right? There is equity and then we break the equity down even further into, you know, what we would consider to be ESI's protection layers. Uh, You have frequently in circumstances like this, required liquidity reserves by the lender, which are in addition to equity contributions, And those are usually funded by the sponsor and they cover things like standard cost overruns. You got land value, which could be potentially in addition to the appraisal, which is being used by the lender. So you can find additional equity cushion there. Um, You've got the direct equity in the land. Um, In this circumstance, the land was wholly owned um, by the family of the sponsor. So that is accessible liquidity from our perspective immediately. The cash equity from the LP that was being brought in was also significant at about Mm -hmm. 75% of the requirement. So we felt justifiably insulated from the potential loss that could happen if this project fell apart. To boot, there was a third party development manager who had been brought on to essentially act as a secondary captain in the event the project was going away that it should not have. So, I mean, we looked at this from a number of different ways and we had to build in a lot of protectionary measures, but at the end of the day, we felt confident that the equity in the project was real. We liked the location. We thought that the sponsor was capable and the sponsor was sufficiently liquid they just didn't have the ability to go out and get the type of financing they needed to build a you know 100 million plus project so to to i i would say to the people who are listening and and, and considering whether or not this is an, an opportunity to you know have somebody come in and and support them from a credit perspective i think the the initial answer is yes but for your liquidity your cash equity in the deal what's the ownership structure relative to the land do you have enough to build in additional reserves um have you secured lp equity
1: right so look there's a few things there that that are worth i think even opening up further the third party development management was that something that esi uh, had insisted upon or was it something that was coming from the 75 percent lp uh, investor
0: so it actually came from the GP um, and they, they, yeah, they, they're, a, you know, pretty intelligent, sophisticated guy, understands that, you know, in the, the three buckets of, you know, you know what you know, you know what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't know, um, you know, there's possibilities for that third bucket to be detrimental to the project. So to insulate himself and make himself more creditworthy and to, you know, enhance the investability of the project he brought on the third-party development manager uh esi went on to you know double check meet with the development manager uh you know call in resources and this the standard check that you would do on anybody in that role
1: and then the general contractor on that project were they operating under a lump sum or uh, a gmax or what was the nature of of that and what kind of projections might have been in place
0: so at the point that we came in, there was a GMP contract in place. So it was um, it was pretty much fully baked by the time we stepped in, just the lender that they had been speaking with had net worth and liquidity requirements which they couldn't meet.
1: And you had full construction drawings and, and things were bid or were you still prior to that?
0: Nope, they're 100% at CDs. Okay,
1: and then what about the developer and or general contractor contingency? I mean, I guess that would be yet another line item of potential equity or reserves in the amount of a change order, or cost overrun, or some sort of significant uh, impediment that might actually trigger a completion guarantee. What, what did that part of the deal look like?
0: Yeah, good question. So significant contingency being carried not only in the GC's uh, GMP, but additional contingency carried by the developer uh, in their project budget. Further to that, as it relates to you know any sort of carry guarantee, which is um, which in this deal is atypical of what we would do, but um, that was a feature of this particular development. We had built out an interest reserve sufficient to cover, I think, six to nine months post completion. So all that lease up risk was at least mitigated to a degree we were comfortable with through the significant interest reserve,
1: and that was the interest reserve within the construction loan
0: within the construction loan, but also the liquidity reserve that I had discussed relative to cost overruns um, also had a feature that went beyond it, which was reserved for additional interest reserve to mitigate the carry guarantee. So you know, this particular project had a lot of special attributes that we're able to get comfortable on.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Um, And I think it's really helpful to kind of, you know, I I know that when the developer crowd hears what we're talking about, they're going to be super excited because there's way too many guys who are held back by the lending market and to a lesser extent, the LP market uh, because of net worth and liquidity. But One more question on that. Uh, As it pertains to recourse and completion guarantees, is the GP, your sort of co GP, if you will, um, first line of defense in terms of perfecting a a completion guarantee? Does he have some exposure or is he relieved of that more or less in its entirety? Is it joint and several? Is it, hey, the first million's coming from you? Like, is there another level there?
0: there is it it was actually recourse to the lead sponsor so non-recourse non-recourse to the code gp but recourse to the sponsor so um you know pretty pretty strict from their perspective Um, but you know these are the these are the times we're working in right now Um, and you've got you know this was mid pandemic so um a lot of rigorous underwriting standards coming from the lending community especially for ground up projects with an emerging
1: sponsor right okay so that's super helpful i mean that's just one example and it, it portrays the complexity associated with doing what you guys are doing and some of the devices you might employ to mitigate risk but you know the obvious question for me is pricing how do you price something like that i think the the marketplace is pretty educated on you know gplp pref waterfall structures and, and kind of what those true splits might end up looking like bringing in a third party who's going to be a co-sponsor uh, is going to provide some balance sheet enhancement and, and per- potentially get the the box checked on the conditions that are uh, required by the lender in order to secure their construction loan. How do you guys start to think about you know, value and, and price on, on that kind of product?
0: It, just to be clear, the question is what is our compensation for, our investment and/or credit enhancement. Yes. So let me, let me just start off by saying our our goal would be to invest alongside the coGP and have credit enhancement be a feature not, of of our investment not be the feature right yes that's
1: that's worth saying also because like i said you're gonna have a million developers who are like yeah just sign on my recourse guarantee
0: (laughs) (laughs) right right well that's an easy no um so the uh look so the only thing that is sort of um you know capital e essential to our investment and going to to happen is there's gonna be a credit enhancement fee of 1% if we do it, right? And then there are three other categories which we've generally uh, been flexible on, but will always want a piece of. Um, one of which is the, the development fee. Um, the second of which is a fiat refinance. Um, you know, we see the the potential for value capture once this thing gets through development. And so we'll want to be rewarded for getting them to that fence post. Um, that's usually a flat fee. The developer fee is a, a portion of the fee. Um, you know, we can structure it creatively, how it gets paid out. Uh, and then, you know, critical to our platform is participation in the promote. And, uh, you know, depending on what the deal economics look like, and, you know, a number of other ancillary items, we'll, um, we'll take a piece of that promote as well. And, you know, I, that's just specific to like a pure credit enhancement deal. Um, if we were to, and, and I, I'm happy to chat about what our, you know, in the ordinary course, what our deal participation looks like. Um, but not,
1: yeah, and I'm not trying yet. to carve the credit enhancement out of the coGP. So if you want to kind of you know more broadly talk about how you guys uh, you know are in the space and and think about pricing, I I just don't think there's a lot of analogous players, and so I think you have you have a lot of latitude in the sense of pricing, right? If I go get a construction loan, I basically know what it's going to cost. If I go looking <laughs> right. for coGP, yes, there's some players in the space, okay, but if I go to yeah. Co-GP, especially if they're willing to kind of say, hey, with with the following mitigants, we will provide some balance sheet support.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As, no, I, I understood. And, and I do think that it bears mentioning that some lenders are amenable to paying out uh, credit enhancement fee of one percent of loan proceeds or uh, some are not. And so in the in the circumstance that we were working through just a moment ago, um, our fee was being paid out of equity right so it ends up being uh not part of the capitalized budget that's recognized by the lender which is another wrinkle that you know increases your project cost and you'll have to have a, a separate economic analysis which basically is your equity capitalized cost but it's not going to be recognized by the lender and neither will your leverage ratio
1: yeah understood but then more broadly i think where you're trying to go is you know the pricing and mechanisms that you guys employ for returns if it was a full i think i had you in the mindset of like here's what we'd charge to do code. uh sorry credit enhancement and i understand that's an outlier case one out of 99 where you would do credit enhancement and not be co-gp so correct let's talk about the more likely scenario 99 percent of the time you are a co GP investor, which may or may not include credit enhancement. How do you guys think about monetizing your investment?
0: Yeah, um, fair enough, and and, and uh, happy to dive into that. So our um, our compensation or fee structure or participation relative to the you know fifty to eighty percent of GP equity requirement that that we contribute to. A project's capitalization is generally defined by five items, right? Um, and there could be more, and there could be less. It, 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 it's highly subjective relative to you know what stage the deal is in. But to the extent available, um, you know, we'll participate in the acquisition fee, usually disproportionate to the capitalization ratios. We will participate in the development fee. Uh, also, generally disproportionate to the capitalization ratios, and when I say disproportionate, I mean to the benefit of the lead sponsor. Right? We understand that they're the developer; they need to be compensated. We understand that fee income is a large driver of the success of their operating company because they are twofold. Right? They've got asset capitalizations, and then as an operating company, they need to, you know, keep the doors open.
1: Right. Which the is third... to say, if you guys are putting up eighty percent of the co GP or sorry of the GP equity as co GP you're not taking 80% of the act fee. You're not taking 80% of the dev fee. You're leaving a very disproportionate amount of it available for the operator.
0: Yeah. I don't know if I'd say very disproportionate, but to an extent that we deem fair, right? It'll be commensurate with what we think the work required on the project is. And, you know, if they've been running hard and spending a lot of pursuit dollars uh, to get the deal under contract and, and, you know, get the acquisition done, you know, we'll we'll recognize that and we'll size it appropriately. But I, I wouldn't anticipate it to ever go um, above what the pro rata capitalization is. Right.
1: Okay. So you got act fee number one, dev fee number two. What are the the other three potential pricing mechanisms?
0: Um obviously profit participation, which is you know pro rata to the to the investment members. And um next is the promote participation where we um we're generally making our money here um so it will be still disproportionate generally speaking to the uh capitalization ratios in the gp equity um partnership but not as severe as you would find on the act fee and the dev fee right so um you know, if we were to be eighty twenty um, in the in funding, and the act fee, you know, was seventy thirty, and so you took a ten percent swing, um, you know, maybe the promote participation seventy five twenty five, and that's just a hy- that's just a hypothetical. All of those sort of you know discounts are it, it's it's a fluid uh, analysis for for each particular transaction.
1: Yep, understood. Um, and then what? And then, the, yeah, the last one.
0: The fifth is, is the credit enhancement fee. And and we do find a lot more comfort, you know, diving into that responsibility um, when we're both invested in the deal, right? Because I think if we're making a cash investment in a transaction, uh, our confidence in its success, very high.
1: Yeah. Understood, and,
0: and that's relative to a deal where you know we're not necessarily putting cash in, but we're lending just credit enhancement and it just becomes a much different dance. But um, yeah, the credit enhancement is, is very much a, a feature of our primary investment platform.
1: Yeah. And look, one of the things that you've portrayed to me in, in all of our conversations is a pretty remarkable degree of flexibility, right? Like you've basically said to me, hey, don't get overly wrapped up in what you think we might do. Just bring the deal forward. Let's understand the fact pattern. Let's look at the market, the deal, the sponsor, their trajectory. What sort of you know assets and liabilities might be around? Not in terms of a conventional financial uh, sense, but the broader picture of you know positives and negatives, and see where we can put a deal together. I, I don't. Am I putting words in your mouth by saying something like that?
0: No, I, I don't think you are at all. I mean, as as I you know mentioned earlier, we we don't have. Uh, any sort of institutional red tape. We're, you know, proprietary investors for the the family that we work for and the principals that um, fund our balance sheet. And that makes our capital truly discretionary. Um, and, you know, it's not, you know, following the rules of, a, of an investment document that a, a bunch of passive LPs who sit behind us have signed on to. It's, you know, sitting down and subjectively explaining and articulating what the investment opportunity is to our managing principal and our investment committee, and you know, to the extent it's compelling, uh, we can generally do it.
1: So, I mean, that's perfect. And, and I apologize for going so in depth there, but I honestly don't think the product uh, is well understood. And and I might even break out what you said about profit participation from promote because that's probably going to throw a couple of guys off uh if you're i'll say gentle listener if you're confused by what peter's just said about profit participation versus the promote google it it's it's subtle um but worth understanding uh we'll let it go for 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 right now but with the platform that you've just described in great detail i have to imagine the deal flow is high um, because it's a it's a very significant gap in the trajectory of the emerging manager, right? How do they get from doing a twelve-unit apartment value add rehab with friends and family money to doing a hundred and fifty million dollar high-rise multifamily development in downtown LA? And the answer is either over a lifetime, or you don't, or you find. You know, your your centimillionaire billionaire friend who's willing to really partner up with you and take on balance sheet risk that that's kind of the conventional way, or uh, you find a group like ESI. Uh,
0: I I don't think that the jump for our target co sponsors is going to be as uh, meaningful as going from a you know a twelve unit apartment complex to a hundred and fifty million dollar deal. Uh, Fair enough. I I. I'm generally of the opinion that the ideal co-sponsor for us is a group who has meaningful experience, whether it's with an institutional investment manager or it's for a large development shop. And they've been exposed to transactions and they've closed transactions with the size requirements that we put out there they just haven't done it for their own account and so you know when that's the case they're not in foreign territory and it's not unfamiliar ground it's just that they haven't done sufficient business or transactions to have generated capital or net worth or liquidity uh, sufficient to getting a deal done if that makes sense and and again it's not hard and fast but You know, those particular groups who have that experience, that large project experience, just not on their own account, I think that to us is appealing.
1: Yeah. Look, it makes perfect sense. I think, I think, uh, uh, thank you is what I would say. Um, So, look, you have to have a bunch of deal flow. How do you go about discerning good from bad?
0: It's a good question. Uh, We do have significant deal flow. You know, I think right now, what we're looking for is very competitive basis. Um, You know, the, the transaction that we looked at most recently was in uh, what I would call an emerging primary market, which is also a large consideration for us. So what market is it in, but is it being purchased at what we perceive to be a significant discount to what market would be or market pricing rather? So the last transaction we're looking at is at a, you know, about a 40 plus percent discount to the seller's basis. And to us, you know, that catches our eye. Other than that, you know, we're looking for A plus locations, you know, as everyone is, um, in addition to appropriate yield spreads. And, you know, if, if those boxes are checked, we're happy to dive in. And, you know, then it's just kind of subjective whether we like the deal or not.
1: Perfect. I get it. So uh, look, let's go a little bit philosophical here, but I kind of touched on this for just a moment, but you have um, founders of unicorn tech companies who likely have put $0 into their company. You have CEOs of large and small publicly traded companies who would basically scoff at the idea that they should be putting up any money into their investments and And I'm pointing to this because I think the commercial real estate industry as a whole has this incredible bias towards like, well, what's your net worth on liquidity as table stakes to kind of play the game? I wonder what your thoughts are on on that, just the persistence of that.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Um, Primarily when you think about it, uh, it, it's generally non-recourse lending. So, you know, the collateral is the asset. So why are they requesting net worth and why are they requesting liquidity from the sponsor? And I think generally speaking, it's a carryover from when loans weren't so diversified. And it's become a convention for underwriting within lending institutions. and They don't see a real reason to let it go. I think also you know, when reporting to their stakeholders, they get to report that this is the net worth and liquidity of our borrowers. And I think it surely instills a, a, a feeling of, of safety.
1: When loans weren't so diversified, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, I think that, you know, the the lending offerings that exist in the market now with, you know, bad boy carve outs with non-recourse, you know, which is not really non-recourse because they're springing recourse and all of the sort of exotic features that exist within loan documents. And. Offerings to make lenders more competitive um continue to have features for when it was more of a commodity product. you just got a loan and if you didn't pay it you you know they took the asset and you were probably on the hook to pay it back,
1: yeah, I got you before, before all of the shades of gray were introduced into the contractual obligations, you'd just look at net worth and liquidity, and since then the convention hasn't really backed off,
0: yeah, that's how I interpret it,
1: yeah. Well, look. There's. It's interesting that you guys find yourself in this kind of fifty million to one hundred fifty million asset size, you know, space. It makes a lot of sense given the strategy, and you know, the you have to get some meaningful dollars out, right? These are small investments within the commercial real estate space, but because of your participation or your position in the capital stack, they're highly levered. But I know pre- previously you've you've been out as a sponsor and done some work in that space and uh, had to kind of go to the market and pursue capital and and this plays out in a couple spaces right but recruiting capital in general for small deals whether as a fund manager or someone who's capitalizing a, a real estate operating platform that might be vertically integrated you in know fund and operating company or. On a project specific basis, uh, call it even like a $13, $14, 15000000 million deal, it's difficult. What are your thoughts on kind of the dynamics that are in play where it seems you're a part of the herd, perhaps? Um, transactions are going fewer and larger, fund managers are going fewer and larger, asset allocations are increasing. It's just, it, it's kind of an interesting ecosystem. And I wonder how you see it. And then I guess maybe where you know, that kind of overlays with ESI.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it is for sure um, a challenging ecosystem. And I think a lot of it is driven by the size of the institutional funds that are out there. You know, when you're out in the market and you're trying to raise a $20 million LP check, um, you'll find a lot of people telling you that, you know, that's just not enough. And and I think that that all comes down to needing economies of scale, right? And in smaller transactions being oftentimes more difficult than larger transactions because they're a bit less sophisticated um to close. Right. And so if you've got all of the money or institutional capital moving toward those large transactions, I think it leaves a real need in the sort of, you know, lower middle market to you know, be competitive and, and place our dollars. I mean, we're we're, again, a fairly lean shop. We don't want to lose control of a project ever. And so that's why we set our size requirements. And we also set our size requirements because we think it's where we can be the most competitive. So, you know, hopefully what it is that we're doing is opening up, you know, a, a world of transactions for different sponsors that, you know, may otherwise be unachievable.
1: Yeah. Understood. You know, less tactically, what's what's one of the best deals you have ever done? whether at ESI or elsewhere, and brokerage, investment, anything. It was just like, you're a real estate guy. You've been in it for decades. So best one of the best deals ever.
0: Sure. So um, the one that stands out in my mind, um, well, I suppose that there are a couple. Uh, the first one was with uh, a sponsor that I continue to you know, be very friendly with, but it was the first transaction I ever did. When i was working at a a group called mka down in san diego and it was called college townhomes and it was a conversion of a class c probably a hundred plus unit apartment complex at the gates of the university of arizona and it was converted into and on the front end of this really high-end student housing wave and it was a great success and i think you know it it stands out in my memory not because it was the largest Certainly not because it was the sexiest, but because it was the one that I cut my teeth on and you know, I've still got a great memory of how good it felt and you know, knew I wanted to continue in the industry after closing it.
1: And that was a conversion from apartment to condo?
0: Apartment to student housing. Apartment so, to student housing, okay. Yeah. So so think think class C apartment complex, going in, doing a full gut reno, adding all of the sort of crazy amenities that are endemic to that student housing asset class at this point um, and, you know, leasing it to, to, to U of A students.
1: Excellent. What's the other one? It sounded like you had at least two.
0: Yeah. So the other one's a bit different in nature, but certainly it was, you know, helping lead the IPO uh, for Landmark Infrastructure Partners in 2014. Um, Much different nature of a transaction, but still equally satisfying.
1: And what, you know, what that look like? I mean, obviously you could probably do a two hour podcast on on that alone, but some, you know, some experience share there. I mean, what's, yeah, what's sure. the brain damage level on going public?
0: I, you know, it's pretty high, right? I think the majority of our management leadership team was spending, all, you know, probably 90% of their time in Houston working with our law firm and um, with the investment bankers. We had at least two firms that, um, that helped us out. And we were currently, at that point, managing five funds for probably you know, not a huge capitalization. They were probably $100 million each. Um, we took two of those funds that had uh, the least amount of time left, and we contributed them as seed assets to what eventually would become um, I, the first real estate-driven master limited partnership uh, to be publicly traded on the NASDAQ.
1: Hmm. And so that, the MLPs are, uh, they're dividend yielding vehicles that are freely traded, right? I mean, I'm, I only know of them within oil, but I've never owned Correct.
0: any. Correct. And so generally speaking, they're reserved for midstream oil and gas companies, which is to say, you know, transportation of commodities. And what we were dealing in was ground leases. So think ground leases underneath micro infrastructure assets, uh, cell phone towers, outdoor advertising or billboards as they're probably more well known. Um, and so that was how we were able to, you know, take it public. And since then it's grown exponentially and they're quite large.
1: Hmm. That's great. Um, well, look, so you've spent a ton of time on the capital formation side of things, right? Whether, um, you know, on the buy side now, on the sell side <clears throat> previously, uh, you just mentioned this IPO. I mean, to say you have an understanding of how the capital markets operate is probably a significant understatement. So for people thinking to approach you uh, you know, for potential investment, what advice might you give them?
0: Yeah, I think know the economics of your deal, be able to explain what its value proposition is, what its position in the market will be um and how it'll be competitive and you know most importantly how it's profitable and i i think if you're able to speak intelligently subjectively about your transaction um you know then there's a great conversation to be had i mean i i, I don't i don't get into you know the the, the more nuanced uh, parts of my career when discussing a transaction so no big deal
1: <laughs> right right what what I mean? Give me an example of horribly done, right? I mean, I'm sure there's a, a there's probably five emails that get deleted for every one that gets open. But where where are the, like the absolute stumbling blocks you see people kind of hitting regularly?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So I mean, the aesthetic of your presentation, I think, needs to be digestible. Um, you know, frequently we're you know in receipt of investment packages that don't necessarily flow um they don't they don't pull you in um there is a marketing aspect to what it is that you're doing and you know at, at a certain point in in every project in every business transaction you need to be a salesperson. and so um i think you know if you approach it as such that'll be helpful you know the the other things which you know would be a a non-starter are um you know totally unrealistic assumptions relative to a market um uh, you know, we understand that, you know, miscalcs get made and financial modeling can occasionally be challenging, um, but you should have a, you know, pretty comprehensive and dynamic financial model that you're able to provide, which supports your analysis of the deal.
1: And the typical sponsors you guys see, uh, you know, I'm getting the merging manager vibe Um yeah. What what kind of body count? I mean, body count sounds horrible. Head count. <laughs> head count. How many people are typically e, on these teams?
0: Yeah, so fair appreciate you clarifying. Um I you know, two plus.
1: Two plus, yeah. Two small plus, teams.
0: And yeah, small teams and, and I think, you know, it's very frequent that the those two or three individuals are the people who are doing all the work. Right? And so, you know, the principal who you're chatting with is probably the same one who cold called a hundred different properties and finally found a good piece of land to buy and has been negotiating every aspect of the deal. And that's kind of a fun part about it, right? Where you're not dealing with a disconnected leader at a company that's, you know, doing very well, but you're chatting with, you know, the person who um, soup to nuts is responsible for the transaction.
1: Yeah. And how do you think about that team, you know, I get it. It's one, two, maybe three people that that emerging manager profile. Um, But outside of that, I suspect they have a reasonable array of third party consultants, whether it's in the civil, the landscape, the uh, structural, the MEP guys. Like, how do you think about the team?
0: Yeah. So, of course, you know, the team is going to be built out differently depending on the stage of the project and a number of other uh elements that we take into consideration but you know you'd want to see intelligence with regard to those firms which were hired Um, you'd want to see um you know every angle of the deal covered through some resource um and further to that you know it would just need to be comprehensive and so it's hard to say subjectively what is required, but it should follow some logical path that you know if your experience is in the you know acquisition of operating multifamily assets and you do light touch value add in the past, um, but now you're hoping to do a deep cut renovation of, you know, a mid rise building in an urban core, um, you know, you should have accessed the appropriate resources or staffed the appropriate individuals to give you the ability to do something which you may not have endeavored before and if you haven't then you know it's pretty pretty big red flag
1: yep yeah, understood um, well look Peter I appreciate you taking all the time to kind of go through what I would call product and attributes conversation um, <laughs> if we shift over a little bit, you know, to personal and kind of the way you've navigated your career and and maybe even as granular as how you kind of navigate your days. Um, I mean, I know I mentioned at the top that part of your recipe for success might be powder days at Jackson hole. Um,
0: (laughs) that's absolutely part of it.
1: (laughs) Right. But you know, let's start with maybe daily routines. I mean, do you have anything that, that you employ on a regular basis to, um, I'll say ground you or, or yeah, I, don't, I don't, I'll just leave it. At, I want to leave it as open as possible. Do you have any daily routines that help you kind of navigate uh, life or I'll just say maybe even today?
0: Yeah. So fair question. And I, I think probably in the contemporary environment it has even more meaning uh, since, you know, it's been almost exactly a year since uh, everyone's routine was turned upside down. And I, I think you know, getting used to the, the world as it currently exists, and hopefully we're departing from um, as we, you know, ramp into vaccine territory. Um, it's important, I think, to wake up and walk and have a cup of coffee and not just start the day straight out of the gate. Um, I'm fortunate enough to live in a neighborhood where, you know, I get to get out with my dog and clear my head And then sit down and be comfortable to, you know, have 10 Zoom calls in a row. But I do think it's important to take that moment at the front end of the day. And in the ordinary course, I'd also go to the gym.
1: Yep. And then anything that you do, uh, just curiosity here, um, meditation, reading, any, uh, I mean, I yeah. Anything on that side for you?
0: No, nothing not, Nothing like that. I mean, look, I digest a lot of information throughout the course of the day. Um, like to read books, of course, but um, haven't dived into sort of that meditative arena.
1: Yep. Um, look, the longer I've been in this industry, the more it becomes clear to me that um, the conduit for pretty much the entirety of our ecosystem is relationship Um I wonder what your view is on r- relationships. Uh, I would say, in particular, around our industry, but perhaps more broadly.
0: Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I echo that that sentiment um, in, in a very real way. Um, you know, each time I've you know taken on a new opportunity, it has been with meaningful help from those individuals who you know, not only are my mentors, but also my peers, and also those that are outside of the industry, right? Just chatting about what the pros and cons might be. Um, Again, going back to those three buckets of, you you know, what you know, and you know what you don't know. And then there's great big abyss, which is you don't know what you don't know. And I think the only way to solve that is through number one, asking questions. And number two, accessing your network and asking them those questions and finding out what their experiences are, and then drawing intelligent, educated conclusions based upon that network.
1: Yeah, I have found opportunity through you. It wasn't opportunity that I was looking for. Uh, I I have found opportunity through a bunch of other relationships, and I wonder how opportunity and relationships might participate with each other in your mind.
0: Yeah, I, I think they've got a very dynamic relationship. I I mean, the the observations that those in your network and those who have relationships with, the observations that they make could lead them to coming to a conclusion that you might be um, a good fit for some role that comes up in their world. And, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have heard about it. So, um, you know, what we do within the real estate ecosystem is um, we're all in pursuit of transactions, basically. Right. And each person who we met. each person who we come across in that pursuit, you know, gets sort of filed away. And depending on what type of relationship you were able to establish with them, you may find that that's a significant source of deal flow down the line. Or you may find that they help you complete a transaction of your own and benefit from it at the same time. So, yeah, it's it's very important.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So look, I'm, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here. This is like the, the lightning round,
0: uh, <laughs> You're fine.
1: for, for me, I find 2021 to be a noisy place. Um, some of that is my own doing and, you know, my own kind of personal afflictions, you call it ADD or, or whatever. Um, I wonder for you, the pace of quote unquote, modern life, uh, you know, your Outlook calendar or Gmail calendar, your email inbox, your text messages, your cell phone calls. I don't know if you participate in social media, you know, trying to keep it open ended again. Uh, how do you view the, the noise of the day? Is it an impediment to you? How do you navigate kind of the cacophony that's, that seems to surround many of us? Maybe that is something that isn't an issue for you, but I'm curious if, if, uh, if it might be
0: yeah well look i I think sort of in the technological age, compounded with a pandemic and other you know elements it 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 is a little bit difficult to keep your attention on uh things that truly have value um you know one of the things which I'm able to do so number one i I don't really participate in social media, so that's not a huge factor um I do however you know get um you know, hundreds of emails a day and going through those emails and trying to prioritize and remembering what it is that you need to do. I, I think it's helped by sort of an old school technique of keeping the actual notebook and segmenting it into, you know, different, uh, particular tasks, you know, some of which can be transactions, some of which can be administrative and keeping a running tally and, you know, quite literally checking the box off. So by kind of rewinding it 20 years, I've found, Um, an ability, at least for me, to keep better track and be less impacted by the sort of volatility of the environment and the the, the pace at which things move.
1: Yeah. And then just how about the noise? I mean, you know, ding, ding, text, phone, email, any (laughs) any mitigants that you've got for that?
0: Well, my phone's definitely on silent. So I don't have, I I don't get, I don't get any ding. But yeah, no, I, you know, I've found myself fairly well conditioned to how it all goes at this point. Um, You know, it feels like I've been living with a a cell phone and email for a very long time. So I've at least had a good runway to get used to it.
1: Yeah, fair enough. For me, again, we're kind of moving around a bit here, but failure tends to be the place where I'll find enough pain to really learn a lesson. Um, It's unfortunate that that's uh, a vibrant learning opportunity. Um, One example I'll give you, uh, I I had engaged a client who had a project in Hawaii and it was all in the very preliminary stages. And I was kind of just getting a feel for the market. I called up a lender in Hawaii and I didn't ask the question, do you have a loan that looks like this? And instead just started to ask them a bunch of questions about the marketplace and the deal and shared high level some of what i was trying to get done potentially with the client little did i know i was literally talking to their lender uh you know catastrophic failure and huge embarrassment and you know i mean uh, yeah it's to this day uh, an unbelievable embarrassment but as such a pretty significant learning opportunity um any favorite failures of yours
0: you know they all blend together so well, um, but 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 that's not to say that they aren't you know frequent and with consequence, right? And and you know consequence almost always has this negative connotation, but you know generally speaking, it's uh, you know what happens after something occurs, and I I find them to be often positive, right? I mean you're you're asking what questions uh, what questions could I could could I have asked. To sidestep the net results of what I was trying to achieve. And I think it informs you as you go forward. So, you know, people will talk about wisdom and, and getting older and things like that. And I I'm not sure that wisdom is so much built through successes, but you know, it's built through learning lessons and being successful because of them.
1: Yeah. Well said. You know, I think at the outset we're or coming into this, I'd kind of given you the the thrust of the um podcast you know supporting real estate entrepreneurs giving experts a place to voice their opinion and, and fostering relationship and connection um on the one of you know supporting entrepreneurs real estate entrepreneurs um you have a unique vantage point into the market into the industry any advice you would give and you've also stood at the the vanguard um slaying those dragons on your own any advice or um words of wisdom if you will that you might uh want to share
0: yeah uh you know in the hopes that you know everything that i'm about to say is not too cliche but it, it probably has existed for a long time because it's it's helpful and it works and it's true but you know i think If you're a real estate developer you need to treat it like a business you need to be thoughtful about what you present to the people who you're asking money from you need to be persistent because most things are not going to work Um, but if you come into contact with a group that turns you down there's a reason and your 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 success is going to be dependent on whether or not you get those deficiencies solved and so, feel free to ask questions. And you know, my general philosophy is that there aren't really any bad questions. If somebody is trying to figure out a problem or you know make something work and doesn't know the best path to get there, but is you know competent enough to go out and discover a resource, and maybe they have that resource at their fingertips, um, and ask the right questions. And so, um, yeah, I think if you practice those things, it would be uh, helpful to you know promoting your career
1: perfect so peter thank you for taking the time listeners thank you for taking the time uh peter i don't know that we discussed this on the front end but if you want to share uh contact information a a web address whatever it is that might help uh, the the listener find esi ventures feel free alternatively if you anything you know just want to say in closing here uh thank you again for taking the time
0: yeah, I, I appreciate you having me on and uh, I would you know drive uh, any interested listeners to our website at esiventures.com. venturescom uh, you'll be able to find general contact info there and a deal portal and I think if you're you know looking to potentially explore a transaction with us just get a hold of us and and we'll have a look um, you know in general you um, you know, I love commercial real estate. It's why I do it. I don't think anybody should be um, pursuing anything they don't like to do. And from an entrepreneurship perspective, there's almost nothing out there which matches the, um, the commercial real estate transaction. So,
1: Great. Again, Peter, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.